independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, Green Dreamer, just to give you a heads up, we're going to be taking a brief summer hiatus after reaching episode 260 as we prepare for the launch of our fall season of the show coming to you in September. That said, I will be replaying some of our most profound past episodes throughout the next weeks in case you haven't listened to them yet. And we also have hundreds of conversations in the archive. So definitely take this opportunity to go back to listen to our earlier episodes if you're not entirely caught up. And if you you've listened to more than a few episodes at this point, have learned from the show, and want to support us in continuing the podcast and publishing our fall season of Green Dreamer, I'd love to get your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. If you've already contributed or are a current patron, I appreciate you so much and thank you for believing in and really valuing this platform. We've had this completely upside down picture of our history for so long. And that if you zoom out enough, then you'll realize that actually for the vast majority of our existence, which, when we were still nomadic and togetherers, which we've been for 95% of our history, actually we lived these lives that were relatively relaxed and egalitarian and peaceful. It's only quite recently with the rise of what we call civilization that we also see the beginning of the history of wars. And you see a lot of archaeological and anthropological evidence for war. Well, I'm so excited to wrap up our summer season of Green Dreamer with this powerful conversation with Rutger Bregman, the New York Times bestselling author of Utopia for Realists and the author of his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. Like many other people, I first heard about Rutger when this video of him at the World Economic Forum in Davos a few years ago went viral. So basically, it's a conference where a lot of billionaires and really financially wealthy individuals congregate. And he was there primarily to promote his book and make the case for universal basic income. But he was so frustrated that people were going on and on about philanthropy, feminism, equality, and so on, while no one was talking about or touching the subject of taxes and tax avoidance. So when he was on a panel and asked a question, he basically avoided the question and took the opportunity to call out the conference and the people there for sidestepping that topic, where he said, I feel like I'm at a firefighters conference where we can't talk about water. It's a pretty entertaining clip, at least I thought so, and you can look it up on YouTube if you're interested in checking it out. But anyway, we're going to touch on his first book and universal basic income here a little bit, and then go into deeper discussions that challenge some widely accepted beliefs many people have of our humanity, namely that when a crisis hits, people are likely to unveil their true, brutish, and selfish nature, and that people are more inclined to be bad than good. We're also going to talk about how our human evolution has really been 
written about the survival of the friendliest rather than the fittest, how power literally changes people's brains and makes them less able to empathize and see the humanity in others, and what that means for our discussions around police brutality and changing the criminal justice system, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Well, to be honest, I was a quite lazy student. I thought, you know, maybe I can become a history teacher or something like that. But I wasn't very ambitious when I started studying history when I was, I think, around 18 or 19 years old. But then something clicked in my head. I guess I got new friends and I became so interested in so many different things. History, sociology, anthropology, archaeology, psychology. I've always been interested in many different things fields at the same time. But my biggest love has always been for history because to me, it seems that history is the most subversive of all the sciences. It's the most dangerous science because it just shows you that things can be different. You know, this is what we forget all the time. We look at our society and we think, oh, things have always been this way or that will never change or this will never change. But actually, Change is the constant. We will get used to things in the future that we think are completely crazy right now because that has already happened. You know, we've gotten used to things that used to be utopian dreams, whether it's the eradication of slavery or equal rights for men and women, democracy. You know, not so very long ago, these were considered pipe dreams that would never happen, but here we are. So that's why I uh, think history is so fascinating because it just shows you that things can be different. Mm. So your previous New York Times bestselling book, Utopia for Realists, explores three policies, a guaranteed income, a 15-hour work week, and open borders. All this sounds great, but I'm sure for people just hearing about them, they may sound too good to be true or come with a lot of doubts and hesitations and questions. So for our listeners that are really just starting to think about, for example, universal basic income, why do you see a need for something like this today? And how did you go from talking about these very concrete policies policies in your first book to then talking about human nature in your new one? Mm -hmm. Well, it's again a very simple idea, actually. So basic income is this thing where you just give money to people. (laughs) That's basically (laughs) what you do. Sounds great. You give them a monthly grant that is enough to pay for your basic needs. So food, shelter, clothing. It's not going to make you rich. It's not going to give you the ability to live a luxurious existence. But it is enough to give you freedom, to make your own choices, just a bit of venture capital. And it would be a way to completely eradicate poverty. We often think that poverty is just this natural thing, that it'll be always be with us and that it's the result of some character failing. But I think that poverty is not the lack of character, it's just the lack of cash. And in the book, I, I go over a lot of scientific evidence that shows that this actually works. So we have experiments going back all the way to the 1970s where governments and NGOs and researchers have experimented with giving poor people free money. And many people expect that they'll just waste it and buy alcohol or drugs or something like that. But every single time, scientists have found the opposite. 
you can actually pull people out of poverty by just giving them money and they'll do great things with it. Healthcare costs go down, crime goes down, kids do better in school, et cetera, et cetera. It's really fascinating. I wrote that book, Utopia Freelist, and I wanted to convince people with the scientific evidence. But what happened again and again is that after 30 or 40 minutes of discussing that, I found myself discussing human nature with other people because they would often say, well, you can give me a basic income, but other people, I wouldn't try it because those other people out there, they're lazy, they're selfish, right? Mm. So I started to realize that actually I needed to go deeper and write a more fundamental book about why most people are actually pretty decent and why we can be trusted. Right. So your new book, Humankind, sets out to challenge this belief that's shared by a lot of people from the left to the right, from ancient thinkers to modern ones, that mm -hmm. humans are bad. You know, part of the veneer theory that human morality is a cultural overlay, a thin veneer hiding an otherwise selfish and brutish nature. And this is a sentiment that a lot of people, especially in the environmental and social movements, I think feel, you know, after learning about our history of wars and violence, of oppression and slavery, this sixth mass extinction driven by human activity, and mm -hmm. also, of course, climate change. So how do you begin to have this conversation when people hear the premise and immediately present you with all these examples of the atrocities and destructions that humans have committed? And was there a turning point in human history when the changes in human organizing and civilization led to people committing more violence against each other and against the earth? Hmm. Yeah. So I must admit that writing this book, in a way, it's been a reckoning for me with my own ideas because I used to believe in what, what scientists call veneer theory. Indeed, this notion that our civilization is only a thin veneer and when something happens, uh, especially a crisis, think about a natural disaster, an earthquake or a pandemic or a flooding, something like that, that we quickly reveal who we really are, that supposedly people are just selfish. I used to believe that, but then while researching this book, I started to realize that actually there's been this silent revolution in science. So many scientists from so many diverse disciplines have been moving to a much more hopeful view of human nature and are actually emphasizing our ability to cooperate. It's, it's interesting. I also discovered that this movement is mainly driven by women. Uh, many of the m more important researchers here are uh, women. And I think the reason for that is that, uh, well, maybe um, a more balanced or more female view at our history also gives you a more realistic picture of, of, of who we are as a species. So, yeah, that's, that's what I started to, to understand. And then I just wanted to connect the dots and to show people that something bigger is going on, that we've had this completely upside down picture of our history for so long. And that if you zoom out enough then you'll realize that actually for the vast majority of our existence, when we were still nomadic and togetherers, which we've been for 95% of our history, actually we lived these lives that were relatively relaxed and egalitarian and peaceful. It's only quite recently with the rise of what we call civilization that we also see the beginning of the history of wars. And you see a lot of archaeological and anthropological evidence for war. Now, that doesn't mean I'm against civilization or anything. I mean, I think we've often made uh, of, or obviously made a lot of progress in the past couple of decades. 
But it does mean that, yeah, this, this thing that we call civilization is, a, is quite a gamble because the real progress has been a really recent phenomenon and we don't know what the future is going to look like. If we th indeed think about mass extinction, if you think about climate change, we may be dancing on top of a volcano right now. I'm, again, I'm not uh, cynical or pessimistic here, but I'm genuinely uh, very, very worried about the future of our planet and our species. Mm. What this really reminds me of is Christopher Ryan's book, Civilized to Death. I'm mm. not sure if you've read that, but he basically talked about on the show before as well, how the rise of civilization as well as uh, land ownership and the creation of hierarchical societal structures or power structures, that kind of gave way to a lot of the bad sides of humanity coming out. Yeah. You know, reading his book was a quite bizarre experience for me. Because I had published my book in September in Dutch, and I don't think he he reads Dutch. And he published his book, I think, in October in English. <laughs> so we didn't know about about each other's work here. And then I read his book. I was like, holy shit, this guy's on his exactly <laughs> the same track that I've been. Uh, which I think just shows you that maybe individuals are less important than we think they are. And maybe sometimes certain ideas are just in the air, right? And that it just it's just a matter of time before someone writes, writes this or that book. Uh, Have you guys I, connected since? No, not yet, actually. I don't know whether she's uh, read my book, but I would love uh, to talk about him. I did read his, his book before this one, uh, Sex Before, before Dawn. Before Dawn, yeah. Yeah, uh, which is a terrific, fantastic book. Another example of how how there's been this huge shift in thinking about yeah who we are as a species so we, for for very long we've been portrayed by mainly western male white middle middle class and richer guys as as this vicious violent species who have this intrinsic need for hierarchy and power differences and now actually a much more realistic and and quite revolutionary view of who we are as a species is is emerging because let's let's be clear here, a more hopeful view of human nature is threatening to those in power. If people can actually work together, then maybe they, they, they don't need all these managers and kings and CEOs and you name it. So that's the reason, I think, why throughout history, those in power have been very wary of a more optimistic view of our species. A really fascinating example that you looked at in Humankind is bullying. I feel like a lot of people assume that bullying is unfortunately a natural part of school children behavior where mm -hmm. children either bully others or they're bullied or both. And in places like prisons, bullying becomes much more prominent and extreme. Mm -hmm. So how do we know that these are not examples of people just revealing their innate human nature? And what is it about these settings that bring out these behaviors? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, I, I used to believe that bullying was just this thing that kids do. A very dark and sad, but unfortunately, you know, inevitable part of the nature of kids and of childhood. That bullying is just what happens. And I mean, we need to do our best to, to stop it as much and to help those who are bullied. But I, I, I assumed, I thought that this was just something that tends to happen again and again in every circumstance, in all the circumstances in many different societies. Turns out that I was totally wrong. Bullying 
is really a product of quite specific circumstances, quite specific institutional circumstances, I should say. So they happen in certain kind of environments. Uh, sociologists call them total institutions. Now, what does that mean? A total institution is a place that has a strict hierarchy, where there are strict rules and procedures, where you are part of a certain group, and it's very hard to get out of that. So you have very little freedom as an individual. Now, a perfect example of a total institution is a prison. And indeed, we know that a lot of bullying happens in prisons. Now, there are other examples of, as well. So for example, nursing homes, this is a sad thing, but it's, it's also true that a lot of bullying happens there because they're a little bit like prisons. Right? You can't get away. You, you have all these rules. You're part of a strict hierarchy. Bingo is sometimes called the devil's game in nursing homes because, you know, it can really be this nasty competitive thing. But then the last environment where a lot of bullying happens, or the, the last example I want to give, are schools. Because the traditional school, and you can think about sort of the classic British boarding school here, is also set, set up a little bit like a prison. You have this competitive environment where people are divided in groups. They can't get away, maybe only during Christmas or during the summer vacation. And we know that a lot of bullying happens there. Think about Hogwarts, you know, Harry Potter's school. That is that has been basically designed for bullying. I think we can turn that around, though. If you look at different kind of schools where there's a lot more freedom, you mix all the ages, you mix all the, the academic levels of the kids, and their, and their interests and their curiosities. And you give them the freedom to basically go around. Uh, you create sort of what I would like to call breathing institutions. What you see there is that there's almost no bullying at all. And that to me was such a fascinating and striking finding. Also a little bit shocking actually, because that means that bullying is like a, was like a political choice that we allow it still to happen. We know by now how you should design a school so that it doesn't happen or almost never happens. So why don't we do that? Why don't we immediately start changing the way our schools are designed? Now often we've actually created these kind of artificial environments where kids will start to behave in a very nasty way, but it doesn't have to be that way. So if people acting out in these mean or violent ways are more or less doing so as a response to the conditions that they've been placed in, hmm. what does that say about our society's tendency to turn to punishment for unwanted behavior? So from children at school being bullies, being punished, hmm. to adults that act out in violence, but maybe as a response to their artificial controlling environments, you know, them being criminalized and locked up and placed in even more controlling and demeaning environments that likely will bring out their even darker sides. Yeah, Does this yeah. mean that we can't just deal with these incidences as isolated events up close, but that we really have to take a step back to examine the systems that we've created themselves? Yeah, I agree. You know, it's relatively easy to assume the best in those who are close to you. I mean, no one has to learn how to trust your your friends or your family. I mean, generally, we like them and we think they're the good guy, the good ones. It becomes much more difficult to see the good in people who are farther away from us, in strangers, in people who are from a different community, or maybe immigrants, or even criminals, or terrorists, or you name it. Then it becomes quite hard for us. Then we really need to use all our rationality and all our self-control to keep seeing the good and the humanity in, in those who are far away from us. And that's, that's I think, what we should do. Uh, one of the most radical examples in my book comes from Norway, 
where they have this fascinating criminal justice system. They've got these fascinating prisons. In Norway, they even treat inmates and prisoners with kindness. So you've got these prisons that are basically, yeah, like holiday resorts. There's one prison called Bastoy, which is an island where it, they, there's just this community that they provide for themselves. You know, they're, they do a bit of farming there, but they also have the freedom to go to the library, go to the cinema. They've got their own music studio with their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. It's, I'm not making this up. It's pretty hilarious. Mm -hmm. They have the freedom to socialize with the guards. They, you know, they sunbathe together. They barbecue together. It's, it's, you look at these photos and you think, these Norwegians have gone nuts. They're crazy. But then you look at the cold, hard statistics. You look at the scientific evidence. And what do you discover? These are the most effective prisons in the whole world. And how do we know this? Well, you want to you wanna know all, as a criminologist, you want to know all about the so-called recidivism rate, the chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. If a prison is really effective, if it really deters crime, then you know you have a low recidivism rate. If it's not very effective, it act if it actually produces more criminal behavior, yeah, then you have a high recidivism rate. Turns out that actually the more traditional prisons, like in the US, for example, have a very high recidivism rate. They're like universities for more crime. They take these people for small drug offenses, for example, and they turn them into hard criminals. In Norway, they have the opposite. They have a system where people come in as criminals, but they're turned into citizens. We've got recent evidence that actually uh, the chance that they'll find a job goes up by 40%. So it's, uh, it's this extraordinarily powerful thing that if you treat people like people, then they, they'll behave like people. If you treat people like scum, then they'll behave like scum. It's a really powerful idea, but then it's very counterintuitive as well. I mean, <laughs> I see myself as quite a progressive guy with an open mind, but still, you know, looking at these kind of prisons, you wonder like how, it's crazy, right? Uh, how, how, how can you actually do that? And um, what, what will the family think of, of victims, for example? But then the Norwegians have managed to do this, and they're actually proud of it. Also, the families of victims, they say that they don't want to sink to the level of the criminals, and they want to stand uh, on the higher ground, like uh, uh, Michelle Obama said, right? When they go low, we go high. And if you, if you manage to do that, yeah, the results can be extraordinary. Mm. I don't know if you've looked into transformative justice, but I've been really intrigued by this idea where they really look at the conditions that sort of lead people to commit crimes mm -hmm. rather than just punishing the crimes themselves. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of scenarios, poverty in the United States is being criminalized or conditions of poverty or behaviors that people resort to as a result of poverty. Yeah. So that kind of ties into this as well, is looking at the conditions and treating people as people that are responding yeah. to the events and the traumas that they've faced. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's hard, though. It's really hard. I mean, I think transformative justice is a fantastic movement. It's a great idea, and it can be so powerful. But it doesn't always come natural to us, or often it actually doesn't. I mean... The longing for revenge is is a dark side of our nature. Mm. But then it is very courageous if people are capable of it. I've got one chapter in my book about South Africa in the 1990s. You know, I'm from 1988, so I can't freely remember this. Maybe I uh, 
saw a bit of the news when I was five or six years old. But studying the history of this was so fascinating to me. Is that I mean, not many people know that it it almost ended up in a most horrible civil war, you know, in between the 19, 1990 and nineteen ninety four after Nelson Mandela was released, and then to just to read the history of how he played such a vital role in making sure that didn't happen, and he needed so much self control for that. So one of the fascinating things about Nelson Mandela is that he knew all about his oppressors. He spoke their language, you know, he knew all about Afrikaner culture because that's, he felt, was important to actually connect with them and to establish trust with them so that he could, you know, have negotiations with them in secret about the, the future of South Africa. That uh, takes a huge amount of courage if, you, if you're going to do that. As I said, it's relatively uh, natural and easy to assume the best in those around you. And on that level, I think we've we really have this great capacity for friendliness. Biologists even talk about survival of the friendliest, you know, which happened throughout our history is that actually the friendliest among us had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. But yeah, zooming out and actually assuming the best even in your enemies, that takes real courage and skill. Mm. So there are a lot of things to question and unlearn. And as you just mentioned, uh, we have this belief in the survival of the fittest in our human mm -hmm. history, but instead it might be more so the survival of the friendliest. But being mm -hmm. friendly is different than being good or bad, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can talk about when friendliness translates into good compared to when friendliness might lead to behaviors and decisions that are bad and harmful. Yeah. So the first question is, what makes us so special as a species? Why that we conquer the whole globe? And for a long time, we like to believe that we're very powerful or we were chosen by God or we're very smart or something like that, but actually doesn't seem we are. If you do an intelligence test and let a human toddler compete with a pig or a goat or a sheep or, you know, whatever, often the animals do just as well as the toddlers or sometimes they even win, especially pigs are very, very smart. People should keep that in mind when they eat bacon, but that's, a, mm -hmm. I guess, another book. But what makes us so special is that I think we have this extraordinary capacity to cooperate on a skill that other species can't. We can learn from each other. And so we, our, our culture becomes cumulative. Individually, we're really not special. We're not very smart. We hardly ever come up with something interesting. But collectively, we can do all kinds of crazy and fascinating things that we could never do on our own. So for example, I can count to 10, which is, I know that's very impressive, but I probably couldn't have come up with a numerical system on my own. You know, I can say, hello, I'm Rutger Bregman in English, which is again, very impressive, but I could never have invented a language on my own. So these are all things that are, that I've, learned from others and that are passed down to generations. And that is what human beings, you know, what makes us so special. And, and it could only have happened if we are by nature pro-social, if we have this inclination for friendliness. But you're absolutely right. There's a dark side to this as well. Throughout history, so many of our most horrible crimes have been committed in the name of friendliness, in the name of comradeship and of loyalty because we didn't want to let our own group down. And then we start behaving in a, really, in a really horrible way. If you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, that is a war that, and a conflict that for decades now has been driven by empathy and by loyalty and by friendliness to one's own people. 
right? You've got an attack on one side and then the victim and the family of the victims are really angry and they want revenge and they feel a lot of empathy for their own people and then they there's an attack on the other side and again, the same thing happens and it goes on and on and on and on. And all these people tend to think that they're all very different, but they're actually pretty much the same. They're just in this cycle of violence where they're sort of being imprisoned by their by their own nature. So um, I think that's 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 you're absolutely right. It's important to emphasize that being naturally friendly is not the same thing as being naturally good. Further, this survival of the friendliest on the topic of power, mm. I found this super interesting. You found that it is indeed usually the friendliest and most empathetic people who rise to positions of power. But we also know that power literally changes people. So mm-hmm. from page 227, you say of people who, who have acquired power, they literally act like someone with brain damage. Not only are they more impulsive, self-centered, reckless, arrogant, and rude than average, they're more likely to cheat on their spouses, are less attentive to other people, and less interested in others' perspectives. They're also more shameless, often failing to manifest that one facial phenomenon that makes human beings unique among primates. They don't blush. Power appears to work like an anesthetic that makes you insensate to other people. End quote. Might there be any evolutionary explanations as to why power tends to lead people to lose their senses of humanity and abilities to connect with other people? Because it, it doesn't seem to make sense for a collective survival to have this tendency. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I'm not really sure, actually. I didn't write about this because it seems to me that the scientific evidence is not strong enough. But mm. my hunch would be something like that we evolved first as a quite hierarchical species that sort of our ancestors from very long ago were more like chimpanzees who have you know these very hierarchical societies very patriarchal as well and then we domesticated ourselves and that during the ice age uh, it actually became survival of the friendliest so domestication is this process where there's a selection for tameness and for friendliness We've artificially done this to uh, cows and to pigs, you know, or, or, or to dogs as well. You <clears throat> you start with a wolf and you end up with a chihuahua. That is what domestication is. Mm. And it seems that we've also done that to ourselves, that maybe we started off as a bit more like chimp- chimpanzees, but now we're baby chimps. We've popified ourselves. So it was for a very long time the friendliest who had the most kids. And the reason for that is that I think for a long time there was this evolutionary advantage to being friendly because in a very harsh, difficult environment, in an ice age, you do not survive by having a lot of possessions, but you survive by having friends. I mean, imagine Donald Trump in prehistory. He probably wouldn't have survived for very long because people wouldn't have liked him. (laughs) They would have expelled him from the group and he would have died alone. But then deeper in our evolutionary history, I think there is this... um, this corruptive effect of power. That, that's sort of my hunch. Mm. But there are 
probably, you know, there's going to be libraries full of books about this because it's, uh, it's really one of the big questions about our psychology. What we do know, though, is that power corrupts. We have so much evidence for that from psychology, from history, from sociology. Power is an incredibly dangerous drug. Nomadic hunter-gatherers already knew it, and they used the shame, and they hum- tried to humble leaders all the time to make sure that they wouldn't go crazy because, because of power. That's why leadership positions in nomadic hunter-gatherer cultures were always temporary, because you know having too much power for too long, it's just uh, it's a dangerous thing. And um, yeah, that is, that is one of the worrying things about our modern society is that often it doesn't seem to be survival of the friendliest anymore, but nowadays it often looks more like survival of the shameless, where you have these shameless leaders who rise to the top and that they're capable of doing things, saying things that most people just couldn't do because they would die of the shame, but somehow they're capable of it. The subject of police brutality has been top of mind for a lot of people, and it sparked a lot of discussion around good police or bad police, you know, people who have friends or family members who are policemen saying that they know that they're good people. Mm -hmm. I don't personally doubt that as individuals, people who work as policemen may be friendly and compassionate people. But now with this discussion, I wonder if the sort of dehumanizing and domineering behaviors many of them resort to are the result of the artificial systems that they've been placed in, meaning they may very well be nice and caring people, but when placed into that environment with rigid hierarchies and rules, and also when given their power and militaristic gear to use over citizens, it inevitably brings out their dark sides and they're less able to connect with the humanity of the citizens that they watch over, which means that it might be irrelevant whether these people are nice and loving to their family members and friends. It's really this entire institution that needs to be questioned. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. You know, this video where you saw this older man being pushed by a police officer and then he falls on the street and he's clearly bleeding and in a very life-threatening situation. And you see the officers just walking by and you wonder how corrupt does a system have to be for something like that to happen? What, what's happened with their humanity, right? What dark road did they go, did they go on? Because the natural tendency of people, and we know this from so much evidence, is that when someone else is in need, when someone's drowning, when someone's attacked in the street, most people help. Right? We've got evidence from CCTV footage, for example. It's a recent paper that was published in American Psychologist, the most important scientific journal for psychology in the world, where the researchers found that based on hundreds of incidents around the globe, in 90% of all cases, people help each other. But then something like this happened, and, and well, clearly you see very much the opposite. And I think uh, it has everything to do, indeed, with the way these police officers are trained and how it's all organized. I think a good police officer should be something like a social worker where you just know the people in your community. You know the grandmothers, the grandfathers, the the aunts and the uncles. People like you. They trust you. So when something terrible happens, they're your allies and they can quickly give you information that will help you track down the real criminals. This is what we call community policing, and there's a very strong tradition of that, mainly in Europe, but there's also been good 
scientific research into that from the US. Actually, the biggest study into policing that was ever done was done by Eleanor Ostrom, you know, the first female winner of the Nobel Prize in economics in 2009. She's one of those really important figures that has caused this shift in our thinking about human nature. And so she find that she found in the 1970s already that the police departments who are smaller, that are more decentralized, are also way more effective than the bigger departments from cities because they're just organized on a more human scale. And uh, yeah, I think that's one of the one of the big lessons we can we should learn right now. So I, I I'm quite sympathetic to this whole defund the police movement. Because, uh, I mean, if, also if you compare the U.S. to other countries, I mean, the U.S. spent so much money on guard labor, on security, on the police, on establishing law and order. Well, actually, most of the real savage, horrible violence comes from those who are supposed to protect and serve. Mm. So, well, maybe for, just defund the whole thing first and then start over again. Right. On the extreme opposite side of authoritarian governance and hierarchical power structures is anarchy, which is defined as a state of disorder due to absence or non-recognition of authority and due to individuals having absolute freedom. I'm curious whether you think this definition of anarchy itself is misguided because it presumes that without authority, when people are free to do whatever they want, we descend into chaos, maybe violence and disorder. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who oppose top-down approaches to governance are often portrayed as these dangerous anarchists by the media. And I'm wondering if that in of itself is a misnomer, given everything that we just discussed. Yeah, I agree. I think that anarchy is almost always harmony. Anarchy and harmony are most of the times they're synonyms. I mean, you can see that in your own lives. You don't need a rigid hierarchical structure to organize your friendships or your families or whatever. I mean, there's a huge amount of anarchy in your own lives where things just develop and are organized from the bottom up and it works quite well actually often much more efficient i think uh, planners and bureaucrats often can't oversee the complexity of human society while things just have the freedom to develop then you get like a genuine harmony i do think though i mean i'm not a, i'm not a complete anarchist in any way i think that we need a state in order to establish equality to give basic rights to people to give them access to universal health care to give them a basic income so they have a bit of venture capital to make their own choices. I think people deserve access to high quality public education as well. But apart from that, you don't need all these bureaucrats and paternalists who try to, yeah, make other people make better decisions because the real experts in people's lives are people themselves, you know, and, and this is also one of the reasons actually why I'm quite enthusiastic about guaranteed basic income, because the great thing about money is that people can spend it on things they need instead of things that some kind of experts somewhere in a tower, things that people need, right? So um, yeah, I think sort of the anarchist philosophy actually has a lot of truth in it. It says that most people are decent, but power tends to corrupt. And those are two principles that I think we should keep in mind when we design our schools and our workplaces, our democracies, and even our prisons. There's really so much to this, but I'm wondering why you think the presumption that humans are more inclined to be bad is so deep-seated. And you kind of touched on this earlier, but who really benefits from perpetuating this sort of narrative? Throughout history, those in power have benefited, I think. It's, it's always been in the interest of elites to spread this cynical view of human nature. 
because you know as i said if we if we can't trust each other then we need hierarchy then we need to be kept in control by those who will give us law and order but if we can actually trust each other then we can live in a much more egalitarian genuinely democratic society so yeah i mean if you look at what's been happening in the us in the past couple of weeks if you've been looking at what's been happening around the globe keep in mind that they want you to be scared they want you to be afraid they want you to be distrustful of one another nowadays it's an act of defiance to keep believing in the good of humanity i think that's really an act of resistance because it's it's the first step we have to take before we can start moving to a much more egalitarian and sustainable society it's uh, it's not it's not about optimism because optimism is i think a form of complacency where you say you know things will turn out to be all right don't worry but it is it is about hope it's about the possibility of change which is also what history is about so history and hope go hand in hand i think now what are the implications of this underlying perspective shift and is our path forward as simple as believing and expecting the good in other people or do you see that just as a necessary first step in laying the grounds for us to then be able to actually change our policies, society and culture for the better? So does this change in our worldview need to come before everything else essentially? I think so, yes. Um because what you assume in other people is what you get out of them and It seems very hard to me it seems very hard to actually change the world if you're a cynic. Think about the environment. Think about climate change, the extinction of species. Think about the, the task that lies before us of moving to a sustainable world and like a, a really green world. How's that ever going to happen if you think that humans are just a plague or a virus or you know that we're meant to destroy ourselves and destroy the world and that everything is hopeless anyway? this is what i argue against strongly in the book there's a tendency among those who care about the environment to become too cynical and indeed describe as 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 a virus or a plague but e- even though problems have been growing on an exponential level i think that solutions can grow on an exponential level as well and uh, if you look at the past 5 to 10 years if you look at the new generation of younger people it's the most progressive generation in the history of the world if you know in, in the uk if only people under 40 could vote labor would win everywhere and we would have this hugely radical government that would implement a green deal very quickly if only people under 40 could vote in the us well then bernie sanders would be the candidate of the democrats and he would probably win that's very different from how things used to be in the 1980s cynicism was seen as avant-garde Thatcher was the most popular candidate among young people in the UK and Reagan enjoyed his biggest uh, popularity among the youth. So that has really changed and we've seen that ideas that used to be dismissed as crazy or radical like universal basic income or higher taxes on the rich or a green new deal or you name it they've really moved into the mainstream. So um I think it's an exciting time to be young nowadays and I think there are good reasons to be hopeful for our future. So for our listeners wanting to read your books, would you then recommend they first read Humankind before Utopia for Realists? So they first unlearn some of the deeply indoctrinated presumptions of our humanity before learning about this utopia and how we can work towards it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great idea. And uh yeah, buy it from your local bookstore, yes. not from Amazon. <laughs> 
And then also just looking at where we're at today and where we want to go, when we have the pre-existing setup of a government, at least in the U.S. and elsewhere as well, that prioritizes the desires and needs of corporations, the elites, and those in power. And when those who've acquired power somehow become more self-centered, less empathetic, and more out of touch, how do we go from where we are now to that future where our democracy truly values citizen engagement and listens to its people's needs? in a way it's already happening sociologists have wondered for a very long time what kind of resistance movement movements are the most effective and they used to believe that violence is necessary that if you really want to, to get power at some point you're going to need to be violent but then they ran the numbers there's a one sociologist called erica chenoweth another woman she built this huge database of resistance movements going back to the year 1900. And she found that peaceful resistance movements are more effective than violent resistance movement, on average about twice as, as effective. Now, why are they so much more effective? Because they draw in a lot of more people, on average 11 times more. So these violent movements, they only draw in people, you know, like these young guys who have too much testosterone. But peaceful movements, they, they draw in everyone. They built, they're, they're huge, like men, women, young, old, rich, poor. And that is how you take power. That is how you change the world. And I think that's exactly what we've seen happening in the past couple of weeks. The, the repercussions of the Black Lives Matter movements are, I mean, we, I think we already see them. We're, they're already being translated into policies. I mean, I can see it happening here in the Netherlands, which is... Which is fascinating that the de the horrible death of George Floyd in the U.S. has led to real and significant changes in the Netherlands that 10 years ago I couldn't imagine. For the first time, we had our right-wing neoliberal prime minister saying that he recognizes that institutional racism exists and that he changed his mind about our uh, Black Pete tradition that you maybe have heard of, which is a sort of mm -hmm. a very quite racist tradition that, to be honest, I... I, 10, 15 years ago, I, I personally didn't see what was wrong with it, but that has completely changed. And um, that to me is, uh, is so exciting and, and so hopeful. So uh, yeah, it just uh, starts with connecting with other people, with, with building a movement. And uh, I don't think people need an author like me to explain how that, how, how that should be done because people are already doing that. <laughs> right. And it certainly feels like there are various social and environmental movements that are currently brewing and growing. So we have the Black Lives Matter movement really focused on institutionalized racism. We have the climate marches that's focused on climate justice and environmental justice. And then we also have more and more labor movements as well that's focused on worker justice and mm. economic justice. So I'd be curious how we can have all of these movements come together to recognize that we all share the same oppressor and we all have to work yeah. to dismantle yeah, 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 the yeah, same yeah. system. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And maybe we should get better at that because what history teaches us is that if you really want to change the world, then sometimes you also need to make uncomfortable compromises and build uncomfortable alliances. And I think one of the... Um, sort of less helpful tendencies in the age of social media and modern activism is that we all have our own pet projects 
and we all have our own language and sort of the right way to talk about the issues and that we tend to become very critical and sometimes even angry at people who are just a tiny little bit different from us. This is what the psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud called the narcissism of minor differences. I experienced this quite a lot actually in my life is that the people who seem to hate me the most actually agree with me for 90%. And the people who disagree with me for 90%, well, they well they don't like me, but they don't, don't necessarily hate me as strongly as those people who mostly agree with me, right? So um, that is, yeah, it's, it's something to be wary of and uh, important to remember that if you really want to change the world, then at some point you'll you'll need to make uncomfortable alliances and, and compromises as well. Really powerful. So we really have to constantly remember the bigger picture and take a step back to look at the overarching goal that we're trying to work towards together. And finally, what do you want our listeners to walk away from this conversation with for themselves? And how can they translate these learning lessons into actions to improve their own lives and better their communities? Once your view of human nature changes, I think everything changes because everything depends on the way you look at other people. Now, I can't say what it'll mean for people personally in their own lives. In my book, in the second half of my book, I just give a couple of examples of people who've already started doing this, building schools on the assumption that most kids are pretty decent and that they have this intrinsic motivation and creativity and that we can actually trust them to make their own decisions. I look at organizations that are much less hierarchical and where employees get the freedom to um, do their job in their own way that they think is best. But there are so many ways to implement this, I think. Um, the last chapter of the book is about a couple of personal rules for life that are, I mean, like literally personal, like personal for me that I try to live by based on this more hopeful view of human nature. One of the one of them is that when in doubt, I think we should assume the best in each other. I mean, often there's there's some noise in our communication and we don't really know what the other person means. And then often we we assume the worst, especially if there, there's some distance in the communication. If we can't actually see each other, we can't see each other blushing or look each other in the eyes, then we start assuming the worst. If we uh, use WhatsApp, for example, you get this emoji and you're like, hmm, how should I, what, what does that emoji mean? I think that when in doubt, we should assume the best for three reasons. In the first place, because we'll be right most of the time, because most people are pretty decent. In the second place, because if people don't mean well, then actually our positive response can cause a so-called non-complementary effect. Someone does nasty to you, you act in a friendly way, then that person finds it very hard to stay nasty. I mean, people mirror each other all the time and it's just, it's just really hard to stay, keep being nasty to people who are friendly to you. And then in the third place, we should also accept some collateral damage. So yes, you will be conned a couple of times in your life. There are professional con artists out there. There are psychopaths, there are sociopaths, but you should accept that as collateral damage. Because what's the alternative? Do you really wanna live your whole life distrusting most people around you? Is that, that's, is that really the price you wanna pay? I think you shouldn't. I think it's rational to accept that you'll be conned a couple of times in your life and that you shouldn't feel ashamed of that. But actually, when it happens, when you'll be conned, when someone will have ripped you off and you've lost you know, money or something like that, you should feel some pride because it actually means you're a healthy, normal human being 
with the tendency to trust most people around you. And uh, I think that's a good thing. And if you've never been conned, uh, well, maybe see a therapist. <laughs> maybe, uh, I mean, there's something wrong with you. It should be something we accept. Beautiful. So it is www.rutgerbregman.com to learn more about Rutger's work and his books, including his latest one titled Humankind. And you can also follow him on Twitter at RC Bregman and on Facebook at Rutger.Bregman. Rutger, it's been an incredible honor to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your really thought-provoking and perspective-shifting ideas with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Oh, uh, well, I'd say that dreaming is actually all about realism. It's what I try to do in this book, is to redefine what it means to be a realist. So often we equate realism with cynicism and pessimism. And then we say that we say to the dreamers, well, be a bit more realistic, which, which often is the same as being a bit more cynical. I think we've got to turn that around. It's actually the cynics who are quite naive, and it's the dreamers who are more realistic because utopias have a tendency of coming true if we fight for them. Green Dreamer, if this episode has inspired you, I'd love to have you join us on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. Today's feature music is Heart by Endless Field. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy, and you, of course, dear listener, for your continued dedication to learning and growing with us. I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Please take good care of yourself and your loved ones during this time. And I will catch you soon in the next episode episode.